This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit wogcc.com. Good morning, church. We're going to continue in our series in the book of Romans, and this week we're going to go through chapter 7 and hit just a little bit in chapter 8. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this title down, The Law of Freedom. And you can also follow along on version if you brought your tablet or your smartphone. Just go look for a live event in your area on that um, app, and you'll be able to pull us up and uh, follow along that way as well. Now, getting into this particular passage of Scripture, I want to preface it by us understanding and having a clear understanding of the purpose of Christianity and looking at the Word of God in proper context. And the purpose of Christianity is for relationship between God and man to be reconciled in order that God would ultimately be glorified. And last week we went through chapter 6 and we talked about freedom and talked about freedom from sin. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're now slaves to righteousness. And this chapter, this week in the book of Romans, is, I think, Chapter 7, one of the most important to look at in proper context. I know it's always important for us to look at the whole Bible in context. But this is a particular chapter in the book of Romans that can really uh, mislead people into wrong thinking if they don't look at what the whole of the text is saying. And when we think that way, we get misled and we have poor thinking. This particular portion we're going to cover today must be looked at in light of the gospel, with the purpose of Christianity being reconciliation. If we don't look at this part of Scripture through that lens, if we don't look at it in that context, then we begin to say things that the author is not saying. And when we say things the author is not saying, the danger there is that we begin believing things that the author really didn't say. And so we want to make sure that we always look at Scripture in context, and we want to keep our doctrine pure. So let's keep that in mind, and let's start out in Romans chapter 6, so we can look at it in context, and we're going to bleed right over into chapter 7. Because when Paul wrote this stuff, he did not write this letter with verse notations and chapter divisions. He wrote this as a letter to the church in Rome. He didn't say this is chapter 7, verse 1. He wrote a letter. We added those later, so we could be able to reference it, and we could be able to look at it. So it would be a mistake for us to look at Scripture and go, well, Paul stopped one thought and then started a whole new thought because he wrote a different number here. Paul did not add those. And so you need to understand those chapter and verse divisions are not a part of the original writing. So let's start out in Romans chapter 6 and let's look at verse 15, Romans 6 and verse 15. What shall we say then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but we're under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you're that one slave whom you obey, whether it's sin that leads to death or whether it's obedience that leads to righteousness? But God be thanked that that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you now become slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented yourselves 
members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness that led to more lawlessness. So now present yourself members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And what was the fruit you had from that? What were the things that you did that you're now ashamed? The end of those things is death, he said. But in verse 22, but now we've been set free from sin and we've become slaves of God. And now we're to have fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life for the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord or do you not know brethren for i speak to those who know the law that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives but if the husband dies she's released from the law of her husband so then if while her husband lives she marries another man she will be called an adulteress But if her husband dies, she's freed from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, there's a lot to that, and we could spend a lot of time breaking all that down. Um, But what I want to focus on here this morning is this thing that Paul keeps referring to as the law. What does that even mean? We can use that terminology, and we have used it for quite some weeks. And a lot of people may not have a proper understanding of what Paul is even talking about when he's referencing exactly what the law is. Now, the law that Paul is referring to are the standards given to Moses by God. It's the rules, the standards showing forth God's holiness. It shows God's righteousness. It shows how perfect that he is by displaying his laws, his rules, his statutes. Now, the law primarily refers to, primarily refers to the second through the fifth uh, of the books of the Bible is where the majority of that is contained. Some people, uh, sometimes you can include portions of Genesis when they refer to law, but mainly it's Exodus through Deuteronomy that we see the bulk of what is referred to as the law. Now, the law contains a lot of things. Paul often refers to the law in part as the Ten Commandments. You'll hear him reference the Ten Commandments, and you'll think that's uh, uh, found in Exodus. That's part of this law that God gave, but there's more to it than that. And I want to show you what that is. There's the Ten Commandments. There's moral laws. There are social laws. There's food laws. There's purity laws, laws of feasts, laws of sacrifices and offerings. There's instructions for the priesthood. Uh, the high priests, including tithes, there's instructions regarding the tabernacle, which were later applied to the temple in Jerusalem. There were instructions that were actually looking forward for a time when Israel would demand a king. So here you've got all of these things that God has put and given to Moses and, and is put in his word, and we see the law. Now, the Pharisees were masters of the law. They were people who studied the law, who knew it. They could recite it. They could speak every single portion of the law, and the Pharisees prided themselves on their ability to be able to keep 
all of these laws. Matter of fact, there are so many laws that there's one for every single day of the year because they wanted to make sure that there's nothing that is missed. They want to make sure there's nothing that they overlook. And so they want to try to keep these laws because in the mind of a Jew, their acceptance, their righteousness, their right standing with God came through how well they obeyed all of that. But we understand that our justification, our right standing with God, comes through faith. But here Paul is addressing the law over and over and over again. He gives different illustrations. He tries to help us understand it. He gives the illustration of marriage. He talks about the authority that we were once connected to. And now we're no longer a part of that authority. Now we're a part of a new authority. So what then is the purpose of the law in this whole process? The law is simply a guide, and it guided who we were to the cross by showing us God's standard, by showing us God's righteousness, by showing us our sinfulness, showing us our inability to do anything about it. Notice that it's we who have died to the law, not the law having died. It's not that the law is dead, it's that you and I are the ones who died. It's our old identity. Who we were died because who we were was driven by sin and that sin separated us from God. Now, the law accomplishes its goal by showing us our true state of separation from God and our inability to achieve God's righteous standard. The Jews believe that if you were to break one portion of the law, even one command, that you might as well have broken the whole thing. You might as well have messed the whole thing up because you broke one of God's law. The penalty for breaking the law, the penalty for us rejecting God's statutes, God's holiness, God's righteousness, the penalty for that is death. And everyone is guilty of breaking God's righteous, holy, and perfect law because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, here's what the law does. It reveals sin, but it cannot remove sin. The law just simply shows you what's going on. The law has no power to remove sin. It can only reveal sin, just like a thermometer. You can't get mad at the uh, temperature in the room because of what the thermometer says, right? It's not the thermometer's fault. The, the, the thermometer is in no way responsible for the temperature, either outside or inside. It is simply a gauge showing you what's going on. What the law does is it reveals what's going on in our heart. And it shows us that we are guilty by God's statutes, by God's law, because we have violated His law, His statutes, and we don't have the ability to fix this separation between us and God by ourselves. We get this idea that maybe we can do enough good to outweigh the bad, and so we spend our lives trying to work our way into God's love or God's forgiveness or God's righteousness by thinking that, you know, we have this kind of karma mindset that I've done bad, and I admit that. I mean, I'm, I'm not too big to admit I've done bad, but I am a good person. Just the other day, I watched that lockup show. You guys ever see that show? And uh, I don't know why, but I'm drawn to shows like that. You know, these guys that are in prison, and, and I want to see what, what's going on with this human behavior. What has caused this? What's caused these guys to get to this state in life? And it just intrigues me to watch these guys. And they went through and began to interview these guys and talk to them, and almost every single one of them believed that they're a good person. Most of us, if we were to say, are you a good person? Yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Well, these guys think they're good people too. These guys are in jail because they violated the law, 
And the law gave them what they deserve. The law demands justice. That's why we have uh, the authority in the form of police officers. They enforce the law. They enforce that that has been said when we violate it. Just like if we go to a four-way stop in Sheboygan Falls, because that's all we have is four-way stops, and no one knows how to operate them. And we play by this rule. It's called the wave. It's a game that we all play with each other here in Sheboygan Falls. And we're all friends because we can see each other through our windshields. And, hey, you want to be friends with me? I'll be friends with you. How about I'll wave you on? Why don't you go ahead and go? No need for you to follow the rules. No need for you to follow the laws because we're buddies. Why don't you go ahead and go? And we violate these laws. We come up to these four-way stops. We do this thing called a rolling stop. You know the one where we go up to and we go, there's nobody here. No need for me to really stop. Let's just keep on going. That rolling stop thing, that was the Flintstone version of it. But we do this rolling stop thing. And, or maybe we go to a place where we don't see anybody around and we just run through the stop sign. What have we done? We have violated the law. And then here comes the police. Whoop, whoop. We get pulled over. The officer says, can I see your license? I want to see this this card that you've been issued by the state of Wisconsin. I want to see this card that you've been given that says you understand the law. That's what your license basically is. It's a card that says you took a test and you passed, which means you understand that this octagon does not mean roll up and keep on going. (laughs) It does not mean play the wave game. It means stop. And there's a certain way we do this. And this is how we do it. And this law is here for your protection. This law is here to keep things operating smoothly. But you have violated this law. So therefore, I'm going to issue you what you deserve. And that's going to be in the form of a ticket. But here's what we would do. We would argue with the officer about all of the other times that we didn't violate the law. Oh, 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 uh, let me tell you something, officer. I have stopped at least a thousand times, completely stopped at this stop sign right here. And we think that because of all of the times that we properly stopped at the stop sign, that that somehow makes us not guilty for the one violation. Oh, I never speed. I never do this. And we think all of the times that we obeyed the law means we're not guilty for the one time we disobeyed. And that's not the way it works, is it? The officer's not going to go, oh, well, since you're a regular stop sign stopper, (laughs) you're not guilty. No, he's going to say you're guilty, right? That's what the officer's going to say. He or she's going to say, you are guilty because you violated the law. Now, when you and I look at God's law, when we look at God's standard, and the law shows us who we are, what do you think our legal standing is? Is it innocent or is it guilty? We're guilty. In the eyes of the law, we are guilty according to to God's standard. That is our legal status according to the law. And we can't fix that. We can't correct that. We, we can't make ourselves in our own strength not guilty. We can't make ourselves innocent by our own strength, by our own admission, because the law shows us our guilt. But here's the thing. Justified is also a legal status. Amen? Justified is also a legal position. You see, we are justified. 
We are made right. We are made right in the eyes of God. The relationship between God and man, us who were guilty, can now be reconciled and restored by faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was our substitute for the penalty of death we deserved because of the guilt that we had. We're guilty according to the law because we've broken God's law. But by faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified or we're made right in God's eyes. Now our status is one that has been accepted, loved, welcomed, forgiven in the eyes of God. That's grace. Not getting what we deserved. It's getting something we couldn't earn, something we couldn't deserve. That's why Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, even that's a gift of God. It's not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. Amen. It's a legal standing. It's a legal position. My position with God is taken care of by the cross of Christ. The only thing that I need to do now is trust that what He did was truly for me. And that it was good enough to pay the penalty that I earned, that I deserved. Remember What Paul said in chapter 6, the wages, the earnings, the punishment of sin is death. But you see, you and I are now a part of something different. When when we were in sin, when we were uh, under the authority of sin, then we, our lives were constantly bearing fruit of sin and that was natural it was natural for us to bear fruit that would bring uh, glory and recognition and selfishness that, 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 that would bring it upon ourselves. That was natural. That's the flow. That's the pattern of this world. But when our faith is in Christ and our status changes, then who we were, Paul gives the illustration of marriage. He said who we were was died. That legal binding that we had, that obligation that we had to sin is broken. It's gone. We're no longer obligated to that because that has been severed. We are now married, verse 4, chapter 7, to another, to him, Christ, so that you and I should bear fruit of that relationship. So now we're called to bear fruit from the relationship that we have with Christ because who we were has died. Who we were is no, we're no longer obligated or a part of that authority. We're now slaves to righteousness. You see, justification can only happen through faith alone. We trust in the work of the cross as legal grounds. And a right standing with God. It's, it's a legal position. And then Romans 7, 6 says that we're to serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter or the law. You see, the law keeps me conscious of my sin. It makes me aware of my sin. And it helps me to see my sin. And when I was under sin, when I was ruled by sin, then I was serving sin. But now that I've seen it, and now that I understand the cross, and now I understand that I'm justified or right in the eyes of God, now I can walk in freedom. I can walk in freedom from who I was. It's now an identity thing where I identified previously with sin, but now I identified with being in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Walking in the newness of, the, of life, following the Spirit of God, or following the pattern of sin. Either way, it's our responsibility which pattern we're going to follow. It's not the law's fault one way or another. The law simply showed us who 
we are. Romans 7 and 7 says, what are we going to say about the law then? Is the law sin? Paul says, certainly not. Absolutely not. He says, on the contrary, he said, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. Uh, You see, it actually magnified, it showed me, it revealed to me my sin. Here's Paul, this Pharisee of Pharisees, who thinks he's a pretty good guy. If you ask him, do you think you're a good person? He would say, yeah, I'm a good person because look at how well I keep the law. You see, but the law... When we look at it in that light, it brings about pride. It makes us feel secure and safe based on our performance. But you and I cannot be secure and safe. We cannot be right in the eyes of God based on our performance. It's through faith alone we're justified. Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. And the law shows us sin. It reveals to us who we are. reveals to us the things that we have done. It shows us our sin. And it shows it to us who would try to conceal it. I think it's really interesting here that the Apostle Paul, who is speaking from a very mature standpoint in his understanding of the gospel by the time he wrote the book of Romans, some 20 years of preaching and teaching the message of the cross of Jesus Christ and preaching grace to many people and to planting churches and to going on all of these journeys, preaching and spreading the good news of the gospel, from being in prison to standing before people in important places where he could share the gospel. And now he's writing to the church in Rome, whom he has never visited before. And here he has an opportunity to boast about himself and really talk about how good of a person he is. But instead he says, listen, let me tell you what I've done. Let me tell you my sin. And he doesn't dance around it. He doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to conceal it. He said, actually, the law helped me to see it. A lot of times Christians think that the goal is for us to get really good at concealing our sin. And we don't want to call things that are sin, sin, because that would make us feel like we're uh, sinning. And so instead, we call it things like, this is my struggle, or this is my weakness, or this is my shortcoming, or this is my failing. And Paul just said, it's sin. He called sin, sin. He called it what it was. And that's not fun, and nobody likes to hear that. Nobody wants to talk about it. But we want to get really good at concealing those things. But Paul says, here it is. The law showed it to me. The law showed me my covetousness. Kind of a tricky word to say. But what coveting is, is one of the Ten Commandments. And out of those Ten Commandments, you know, nine of the commandments were behavior-related. But only one commandment was desire-related. And that's coveting. And Paul said, listen, I, I myself see my own covet that I have had towards something or someone or whatever the case may be. He revealed it. He made it known instead of trying to conceal it. He said, the law showed this to me. The law said, listen, you're coveting. And, 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 and that, that the word coveting really deals with our deepest desires. It's not just wanting something that someone else has. Yeah, that's a part of it. But coveting at its core is really us desiring or craving something we don't really need. It's what happened back in the Garden of Eden. And that happens through deception. Sin would want to come and, and, and would deceive us or drag us into this thing by painting itself as something we need. And then our heart begins to covet, begins to want something. Think about the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are here in perfection. And then they have everything they need. God has not shortchanged Adam and Eve not one bit. He hasn't said, oh, I've given you everything you need except this. Ha <laughs> ha, dangling the carrot. 
God didn't do that. He gave them everything they needed to live, to be sustained, to grow, to walk in relationship with Him. Everything they need. He said, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Any tree, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't even touch it. The day you eat of this, he said, you're surely going to die. But what happened? The very thing that they were told not to do, the very thing that God had established as, I do not want you to go near this. I don't want you to partake in this. They were seduced into partaking of it because it dealt with their desire. Their desire was engaged by a lie, by temptation, by smooth words of trying to seduce or draw them in to wanting something else other than God. Wanting something else other than what God had provided. And Paul said, listen, I've done this. And the law showed me that I've done this. You know, just like we look at the Ten Commandments and we go, well, hey, man, you know, according to the Ten Commandments, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, you know, I got that whole not murdering anything down. You know, I, I'm not murdering people. I'm doing pretty good with that one, you know. And we look at that and then Jesus goes, whoa, 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 hang on just a second. You think you're really good because you can keep the law. And we think we're good because we haven't murdered anybody. But here's what Jesus said. Have you ever been angry with your brother? He said, well, guess what? If you've been angry with your brother, you've held those things against him, you've already done the deed in your heart because that's what God is concerned about anyways is our heart. Amen? And he said, listen, I'm just trying to show you the purpose of the law. Jesus didn't change anything about the law. He just showed them the purpose of it. They thought it meant literally don't murder and don't kill, which, yes, it does. I'm not telling you to kill people. Killing is wrong, and it's bad. But here's the thing. Not only is he saying that, he's saying, but there's something deeper. There's something in your heart that is still murderous. There's something that still would wish pain and suffering upon others. There's something that I'm trying to show you that the law is showing you how imperfect you are. The law is revealing sin. And and, and we work so hard to try to conceal it, but the law goes, hey man, the more I see the law, the more I see God's perfection, the more I see God's righteousness, the more I see God's holiness, the more I see I'm not. The more I see how unperfect I am, the more how I see the desires of my heart can be corrupt. I was listening to a pastor uh, the other day, and this guy's been in ministry some 40 plus years, and he was preaching to a group of Bible students, all right, at a Bible college. And he gets up in front of these guys, and he says, you know, he said, I cannot honestly say that I've ever had a 100% pure intent or motive with anything I've ever done. <coughs> Guy who's been in ministry for all these years gets up in front of Bible students and says, hey, I don't think my intentions have really ever been pure with anything that I've ever done. Because in our heart, at the core of who we are, there's something there. That's why none of us can try harder to be more humble, right? Because how do you know when you get there? I mean, the moment you think you've arrived, then you just prove that you haven't arrived. Just like when we think we're doing something good for someone, maybe, and secretly in our heart of hearts and our intent, we're hoping someone notices, hoping someone sees, because we want them to think we're good people, or whatever our good intentions are laced with. You see, there's something in us, there's something that we always tend to gravitate towards this, this old nature, this old way of thinking, this old way of doing things. And the law says, gotcha. Let me show it to you. I want to reveal to you the things that are in your heart. 
And when I see the things that are in my heart, it makes the cross so much sweeter because He took my sin, He took your sin, and He nailed it to the cross. He took your sin, He took my sin at our lowest points, at a, even when everyone thought we were great and we had everybody else fooled. He still knows who we are. He sees who we are and He still chose to count us as being worthy for Him to send His Son to come and die for us in our place knowing that while we were yet sinners, that he would still die for us, man, that's huge. That's huge. It shows us who we are. The law reveals it to us, which means the law is not our problem. Sin's our problem, right? It's not we go, oh, the law is, law is bad. Paul said, is the law sin? No, law's not sin. He said the law is holy and good. See, sin is the problem. Let's keep reading. Romans 7 and verse 8. He said, sin takes the opportunity by the commandment. It produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I, I, I didn't get it. I, I wasn't aware of how sinful my sin was until I saw the law. That's what he's saying here. Verse 9, I was once alive without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was supposed to bring life, I found brought death says that Paul died. He said he brought death. And did Paul physically die? No. It wouldn't be verse 11 if he died. <laughs> but here's the thing. He said, no, listen, this, this, this has caused me spiritual death. This has caused me separation from God. The fact that I, I, I see my sin for what it is. Verse 12, uh, verse 11, for sin taking occasion in the command... Uh, by the commandment deceived me, and by it it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and is just and good. Says so the law is holy, the law, law is good. You see, Paul knows something here. He knows that the law is good. He knows that he kept it. And one could say he was an expert law keeper, but in his own humanity, he admits that he has struggled with covetousness. He admits that he's struggled with this, and the law showed him that sin. And it shows that even in our lives as, as Christians that we see this war within us. And he begins to write about that in verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. He said, But sin, that it might appear sin, it was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, I'm sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. But what I hate, that I do. Verse 16. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree that the law, that it is good, but now it's no longer I that does it, but it's sin that's dwelling in me. For I know that in me, that's in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what's good? I don't find. For the good that I will or I want to do, I don't do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who does it, but it's sin that dwells in me. I, I find then that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. My inward man, I'm delighting in the good things that God wants me to do is what he's saying here in verse 22. But I see another law in my members that's warring against the law of my mind. And it's bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. 
O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. You see, what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to help each one of us to understand, to get that although we have been married to another, although we are no longer under this authority of sin, that there is still something that would want to try to draw us back to that former life, that would want to draw us back to that former authority that we were once under. And there's this war going on between our flesh and our spirit because it's one thing to be forgiven of sin and it's another thing to walk in victory over sin. We understand that we are forgiven. We understand our status is justified, that we're right in the eyes of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But that's not the end of the story. Because if that were the end of the story, then God must be extremely cruel for after we come to faith in Christ, letting us stay here until we either die or we get uh, taken to heaven to be with Him. That would be really cruel. What's the purpose then? Our life does serve a purpose here on this earth after our status changes to when we're justified in the eyes of God. And that is that we're supposed to grow in sanctification. That is that we're supposed to grow in reflecting God's glory and showing God's glory to the world. That God wants us to walk in victory, not in the flow of sin that would bear fruit unto sin. Remember what he said in verse 4, but you have been married to another that that you would bear fruit unto God. You would bear fruit of the Spirit, that you would point others to the cross, that we would show this world the goodness of God, that we would walk in victory over sin, and that ultimately God would be glorified through our lives. You see, it, it, it changes my understanding of my purpose here in life. It changes my understanding of what He has created me justification our legal standing with God is done we receive that gift by faith alright that status does not change even though we may struggle with sin even though we may be tempted even though we may fall just because we fall just because we're drawn to something does not mean that our status changes in the eyes of God because we are justified by faith and our faith has to be in the cross not in how good we keep the law right And so because of that, we need to understand that even though there's a war going on, that our status is still wrapped up in faith. That's where our status in the eyes of God comes from. But the more I grow in my understanding of His love and the more I grow in receiving His grace by seeing sin as exceedingly sinful and I see the cross as beautiful and His grace as sweet, that it begins to change me from the inside out and my life begins to bring glory to God. See, Paul identifies with humanity here, with this war going on. How many of you, even while I was reading that, you go, man, that makes a lot of sense to me. I totally get how Paul is saying that. It's like, I know what is wrong. I, I, I know there have been things that have told me that there's things that are wrong, and I still I do those things anyways. Just like when it's 11.30 at night, and you start feeling sorry for yourself, and all of a sudden you go, you know what I need right now? I need a bucket of ice cream. And a Matthew McConaughey movie, all right, all right. That's what we need. That's what I want. That's what I need. It's going to make me feel better. But the government wants to spend taxpayer dollars 
making little commercials where someone comes out and says, you ever feel bad? Don't eat a gallon of ice cream. It won't make you feel better. This is just a friendly reminder from the health department of the government of the United States of America. Oh, thanks for that. That didn't change me. I knew it was wrong. I knew I shouldn't do it. But yet I'm still drawn to those things anyways. You know when you're eating that that that's not healthy for you. You don't need a commercial to tell you that. You know that. You're pretty, pretty savvy to that. And we go, you know what? This is not the best thing for me, but I'm choosing to do it anyways. And we do that all the time because of this war. Because we go, man, there's things that I know. Good God, why? Why am I doing this? Why do I always seem to go this way? Now, does that mean that you're not forgiven of sin? Does that mean you're not justified in the eyes of God because you have those inclinations, because you make poor decisions? No. You see, you're justified through faith, and that's where we place our hope. That's where we're able to rest, because it's not in my ability to perform that makes me right with God. It's faith in what Jesus has already done for me. That's what makes me right in the eyes of God. That helps me to rest. And as I rest, God begins to walk with me by the Spirit of God that now dwells on the inside of me. And He's leading me and He's guiding me into all truth. And He's helping me to grow and walk in this life, not only understanding my forgiveness and my status, but also growing in a way that would bring and give Him glory where I'm walking in victory over sin because I'm no longer a slave to that stuff. I no longer am obligated to obey sin. That doesn't mean that I won't make those decisions in my life. That doesn't mean that that war is not there. It just means I'm no longer obligated to it. And I want to identify now with who Christ has made me to be, not who I was when I was previously obligated to sin. Now my identity is not wrapped up in my shortcomings or my failings. My identity is now wrapped up in the cross of Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, the Bible said. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives within me. Amen? I identify with the fact that who I was, the person that was a servant or a slave of sin that was in bondage to sin, is dead. And now a new, new marriage, a new authority has been given. I am now under a new authority, a new and better and living way, and that is with Christ. And He wants me to walk in victory over sin. To walk in victory over present struggles is really growing in grace. It's growing in understanding of grace. It's growing in sanctification. It's growing in realization of the new identity that I have in Christ. Because although I may struggle with desire, Grace defines who I am, not the things that I have done or the things that I struggle with. Now, if I allow my identity to be wrapped up in grace, I begin to understand that I am justified. I'm made right in the eyes of God legally. Understand that Christian maturity is not defined as working harder not to sin once you get saved. Christian maturity is growing in repentance and faith. That's what Christian maturity is. It's not, oh, look, I'm Christian 3.0 because I don't do these things. Let me go down my laundry list of all the things I don't do and all the things that I do. Look at how great I am. I'm I'm Christian 3.0. That's not how it works. That doesn't mean you are mature because of the things that you have figured out how to walk in authority over. No, the thing that represents maturity is 
man, I see my sin and I am willing to repent and grow in faith and trust and hope in the gospel. Because the gospel that brings healing, it's the gospel that brings wholeness. And repentance doesn't just mean, God, I'm sorry and I recognize this is wrong. Repentance means I'm turning away. I'm actually renewing my mind. I'm actually changing old thought patterns that I previously had and renewing these things unto the new pattern that God would have for me that would bring Him the most glory through my life. That's why Paul says later on in Romans chapter 12, he says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can prove what is the perfect, holy, and acceptable will of God. You see, it's this battle that's going on, that, and Paul even explains this here. He talks about this this, this law that's in war against the law of my mind. He said, there's something I know, there's something I understand but there's a subconscious pattern that I keep repeating. It's something I've been accustomed to, something I've been, been wired, hardwired to do, but I don't have to do it anymore. I'm not obligated to it, but I keep repeating it. And we keep repeating this but out of our woundedness. We keep repeating this out of our pain. We keep repeating these things out of the areas that we haven't trusted Christ in. We repeat these habits over and over again and and, and these things that we've been told or these things that we've believed about ourselves or these things that we've come to think about ourselves. And so our whole identity has been wrapped up in our woundedness and we can't grow beyond that. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life abundantly. And he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And he wants us to walk not after the flesh anymore, but after the Spirit because we are called to bear fruit of the Spirit of God dwelling on the inside of us. And that happens through us allowing the Word of God to renew our minds and to build our faith and our hope and our trust in where our help comes from. That my help doesn't come from Oprah. That my help doesn't come from Dr. Phil. That my help doesn't come from my job. That my help doesn't come from any other source other than Christ alone. Because I see my sin. I see my need for Christ. I see that I am guilty according to the law. But I see that my status because of Christ is forgiven and free. And I want to identify with that, not with the former. And I want to learn who I am in Christ and grow in who He says that I am so that my old way of thinking can be reprogrammed and I can begin to believe things about myself that God says about me instead of believing what sin would say about me. That I no longer allow sin and others' opinions of me to define me, but I allow the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to redefine my life, to redefine my path, redefine my actions, because I used to go this way and it looked like the way everybody else was going. But now, because of newness of life in Christ, because of the gospel, it has gripped me in such a way that it has changed my heart, that it has changed my obligation now. Now I'm obligated to Christ. Now I'm no longer my own. I'm bought with a price. I'm a slave unto righteousness. I'm no longer a slave of sin. Although the war is very real, although the war is very present, I'm not obligated to follow and play the rules anymore. Play by those rules anymore. I'm not obligated to that dead man. I'm now wrapped up in Christ. That's why Romans 10 and 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That way, the more we hear the Word of God, the more we hear the Gospel, the more we hear the truth, the truth makes us free. Amen? We see the truth. We see the truth for what it is. We see the truth for who we are. We see the truth of God and how glorious and righteous and holy and perfect that He is. And we see how we're 
not. And it drives us to cling to the cross because it was a gift, a free gift. Not something you could earn, not something you could deserve, but it's something that he gave freely. And it wrecks my heart. And it makes me all of a sudden now feel a sense of value and worth that maybe previously in my life I never felt before. It gives me a new perspective on what love truly is as to where maybe my definition of love was really goofed up before because of what I've seen or experienced. Now, I'm going to react oftentimes out of what I've seen before or what I've experienced because that's what I know. But we become transformed through renewing our minds to who God says we are to who He's created us to be. And that comes through us looking into His Word. That comes through fellowship with the Holy Spirit where we walk with God. That's why the Bible says that the Spirit Himself is going to lead you and guide you into all truth. That the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. Amen? You see that they're being ordered by the Lord. So as I walk, all of a sudden, He begins to help me to walk in healing from things that I used to react poorly out of because of wounds in my life or because of things that I saw modeled before me that now I go, wow, I'm set free from that pattern. I just need to change the way that I'm thinking. I need to find healing from those wounds. And that's what this whole journey, this sanctification process is about. It's about walking in healing, walking in newness of life, not walking after the flesh, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, but walking after the Spirit. That's why Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation for those who are now in Christ. You see, when I walk after the flesh, when I fulfill the lust of the flesh, I'm going back to that defaulted old nature, reacting out of my pain, reacting out of my wounds, reacting out of the things I saw modeled before me that I thought were normal, that I'm not obligated into. But now when I see the new life that Christ has given when I see his pattern, when I see the, the things that he has said before me, when I see him leading me and guiding me, I see these chains of guilt and condemnation and this weight and this junk that I used to have to serve, that I was obligated to serve because it's just, it was my nature. But now I see there is a new law that I am under, a new law that I am a part of, and that law is the law of freedom. Because the law of freedom shows the majesty and the glory of God. That while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. It shows his bigness. It shows his love. It shows how awesome he is. That he can not only take us and forgive us who were sinners and make us right in his eyes because of the sacrifice of Christ, but that he could, empowered by his Holy Spirit, help us to walk in a newness of life. To where our lives begin to bear fruit of the Spirit of God living on the inside of us. And that's not one that is chained and in bondage to habits and sins that would want to drag us down, that would want to harm us, that would want to lead us to death. But it's in walking in newness of life and freedom and forgiveness. In me understanding my position now in the eyes of God. Me understanding that now I, I'm connected. I, I'm under new authority. I'm married to another. You see, the purpose of Christianity is for relationship between God and man to be reconciled in order that God be glorified. And that's the gospel. 
Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He, he said that the law is like the needle that passes through a wound. It hurts, man, when that needle goes through. Oh, and it opens up the, just a little bit more, just that, that, that wound as that needle passes through, but that the gospel is the thread that follows the needle. That the thread begins to help bring closure. That the thread helps to bring about the ability to start experiencing the healing that Christ has paid for. The law is that needle. It's, it's, not, it's not a bad thing. It's not a sinful thing. It just simply shows us the fact that we're wounded. Shows us the fact that we're guilty. Shows us those things. But then the gospel is the thread that weaves through the wound that helps us to find healing and wholeness so our lives can bring glory to God. You see, the more I grow in my identity with Christ, the more I allow grace to define me. The more my understanding of my legal position of being justified, it affects my actions. The more the fruit of my life bears from the gospel at work in my heart, the more my life brings glory to God. You see, we're no longer under the authority of that sinful nature. Although we may sin, although we may struggle, and those things are all too real, we're not slaves to that identity anymore. We don't have to walk in condemnation anymore. We can walk understanding that you were bought with a price, that we're not our own, that we belong to God now because of our faith in the finished work of the cross. And that gives me peace. That gives me rest. That takes the yoke and the burden of all the pain, of all of the shame, of all of the guilt, of all the condemnation. It takes it off of my shoulders and it places it on the cross. And Jesus said, take my yoke. He said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Take this upon you. Because I want you to be able to breathe and rest in my goodness. I want your life to be able to glorify how great and awesome God is that He would take us who were wounded, guilty. He would love us right in the middle of all of that. Not when we cleaned up our act, not when we got everything figured out and then God said, okay, you're worthy of my love. No, that while we were yet sinners, that God would so love the world that He would give us in the middle of that brokenness, in the middle of that sin, in the middle of that lowest point, in the middle of all of our corrupt desires where our intentions may not always be pure. He said, I'm going to die for you because this is how huge my love is for you. And when you can receive that kind of love, when you can receive that kind of grace, your life is going to begin to glorify God because when you can receive that kind of grace, guess what you can do? You can give that kind of grace. When you can receive that kind of forgiveness and you grow in your ability to receive that kind of forgiveness, guess what you can do? You can give that kind of forgiveness. And all of a sudden, you're not reacting and acting like everybody else when they're offended or wounded or when pain would come. Now you're acting out of the love of God that's been shed abroad in your heart. It's changing the way you act and react towards others because you understand it's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ who lives within me. And I want my life to bear fruit of the gospel at work in my heart. I begin to show the love of God to others. That's what Jesus said. He said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples when you have love one for another. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, by this, all men are going to know. This is going to be the calling card that you're my disciples. How are they going to know because of this love? Because it's been shed abroad in your heart and you're able to give that kind of love away. 
no strings attached and you grow in that and the more you grow in that the more you show the love of God the more you bring hope to a hurting world the more that we are able to be ministers of reconciliation like Paul says that we're called to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 he said we've all been given that ministry of reconciliation we've been given this this is our responsibility therefore if any man's in Christ he's a new creation old things have passed away behold all things become new all of us are Greek scholars in the room when it comes to the word all right because we know the literal Greek translation of the word all we've talked about it before here at church what is the literal Greek translation of the word all when he says that all things are made new what is it somebody tell me it's all you guys know you're Greek it's all It doesn't mean partial forgiveness. It doesn't mean partial newness. It means all things have become new. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who aren't walking after this obligation to the flesh, but they're walking in a newness of obligation to the Spirit of God. You've been set free. I want to pray for you. God, I thank you for everyone here today. I thank you for the opportunity to share your word. And I pray, God, that it's been sown on good ground today. And I know that your Holy Spirit is doing what no man could do. And I trust in that. I say, Holy Spirit, I'm trusting you to work on hearts and minds. Work on those emotions, God. Work on the wounds and those pains that people walked in here with, those burdens, the the junk that people walked in here with, Lord that they've been carrying around for years and living reactively out of those things. God, you bring those things to the surface. And it's your love that does it. You bring those things to the surface, Holy Spirit, so we can begin to understand, so we can begin to walk in forgiveness, so we can begin to walk in repentance, so we can begin to walk in faith. I pray that you would help lead and guide us into all truth that you would help us to understand your word so we can correctly apply it in our lives, that we would be those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, that we would hunger and thirst after your truth, that we would hunger and thirst after who you are, that we would receive this message of identification with Christ as we look in the scripture, as we look in your word and we see who you've created us to be. I pray that it brings about healing in people's emotions. I pray that it brings about healing in people's minds. I pray that it brings healing from people's past, from their identity crisis of not understanding who they are in Christ. I pray it brings clarity because God, you're not the author of confusion. You're the author of peace. And I pray that that peace that passes all understanding will guard hearts and minds by Christ Jesus. That the purity of your word will just spring up within us, will just flow out of us will wash over all of the contamination that this world, that past, that wounds, that sin has brought in our minds and in our lives that may be buried deep within. Holy Spirit, begin to do the work that only you can do in hearts and minds and lives today to bring about healing, to bring about wholeness, to bring about the glory of God thank you that surely you bore our grief and carried our sorrows thank you that 
that you were wounded for our transgressions, Jesus. Thank you that you were bruised for our iniquities. Thank you that the chastisement that brought us peace was upon you and that by the stripes that you took, we are healed. Thank you that there's freedom in Christ. I pray we walk in that freedom. We walk in that understanding and that we grow in bringing glory to you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.